podcast family, what's going on? Thank you for tuning in one more time uh, to the Think Space podcast by Self Hire. Listen, before I get to this intro, I just have to say it's so amazing to get all of these uh, emails, texts, calls, DMs um, regarding conversations and topics that we discuss in the podcast with various guests. I know our guests really appreciate it. Um, I really appreciate it. I will answer every DM, uh, every email, every call, every text. Um, just people hit me up and saying, hey, listen, you guys were talking about uh, this, that, and the other, and I just wanted to add to that conversation and, and say, have you thought about it this way? Uh, that's amazing, and that's kind of what we do this for, um, is to push that thought, push that progression. So thank you guys so much. Today, uh, we had a live podcast, one of the first times we've ever done this, and I'm very excited about kind of rolling out this new, this new idea, this new concept of having a live audience for our podcast. Uh, this podcast here today um, was a lecture discussion conversation, lectures may be a dirty word, <laughs> um, about ethical investing. It was titled Context, Ethical in quotation marks, Investing for the Next 50 Years or Half Century. Um, it was myself and my business partner, Anthony Edwards. Uh, Anthony's my business partner, my friend, uh, mentor. Uh, there's four decades between us. I'm in my 20s. He's in his 60s. And so we brought a very compelling discussion to, uh, to the live podcast about how and why we are moving and transitioning an economy to a sustainable economy, a renewable economy, uh, topics around climate change, uh, a lot of kind of bigger philosophical talk in there as well. It's what I've been consumed uh, with the last kind of two, three years in my professional and personal life. Uh, concepts that I've been brewing and thinking about and refining. So it was great to get this out in the world uh, through our live audience and now through the podcast and on paper. It was amazing. So I, I really, if there's any engagement you guys want uh, from this podcast specifically, anything you have question marks about, please do reach out to myself or the team. Um, and I'd love to further the conversation with you guys. Uh, hopefully this is enjoyable for you. I know it was, it was a ton of fun for us and a ton of fun for the live audience as well. So Here's uh, myself and Anthony Edwards. Um, guys, thanks for coming out to a live podcast. I really appreciate it. We've been doing podcasts for a while now, so I'm really excited to actually have some people in the room and like talk to somebody uh, as opposed to just talking to one person, having a room. Like That dynamic's really fun and really interesting. This space is obviously awesome. Um, and you guys are all, you know, we're here. Uh, this is part of a talk that will be given uh, as part of uh, RI Week. So there's an association called the Responsible Investment Association. And so as part of that, uh, we are going to be giving a talk uh, on the islands at the end of this month, which is going to be essentially this one, refined a little bit, tuned down a little bit. Um, but we wanted to, or I wanted to get a group of uh, intelligent people that I could use as a sounding board, that we could use as a sounding board. So we could go through and say, hey, this this was stupid, or this didn't make sense, or these concepts didn't line up. I couldn't think through this part. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll reach out to all you guys individually after and be like, hey, what was good, what was bad? Um, and, you know, how, how could we improve, uh, basically? So, um, with that, uh, why are we here today? So, there's, I've kind of chosen a field around, I'm, I'm in a dying industry. Uh, I'm in a dying industry of brokers, transactional accounts, um, things that where, you know, we don't get paid in the world anymore. It's more about setting up the infrastructure, setting up the place. Uh, we all share our cars now. We share, we're in a sharing economy, a gig economy. As a broker that's paid on transactions, I'm in a dying industry. Um, so why am I here? Does it make sense as a young person? 
Um, you know, there's obviously a big age gap between Tony and I. Uh, Tony is 62. Uh, I'm 23. So um, there's 40 years. There's four decades there. Um, so why in this industry? Um, it's because I see some super long-term tra- trends that I think are going to pan out and can be super profitable and that I can align with. Um, and then I can stand behind for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, half century, uh, hopefully, because you know we plan on living a long time. Um, Tony here has been doing this for a long time. This concept of socially responsible investing, what does it even mean? Ethical uh, asset management, what does that mean? Where are these trends going, these emerging technologies, all these types of things. Um, Tony's been doing this since... 97. So I was born in 96. But I was my head was in my head was in the space so well before that. So how did you uh, first get involved in the space? You know, I grew up in Toronto. Um, we had three television stations in Toronto. One of them was uh, from Buffalo, New York, which was the closest American station we could we could feed in. A little black and white set. Uh, and so, as a young person growing up, so I was born in '57. As a young person growing up in the '60s, the first memory I have of that television was John F. Kennedy getting assassinated. Uh, the second memory was watching the uh, race riots in the States back then. So Detroit, the inner cities in the U.S. were like a flame, literally, uh, violence. And I'm there, you know, I'm nine years old, 10 years old going, what's, what's going on down there? So that kind of that experience sort of um, sparked my social sensibilities in a way. Uh, and then along came ethical investment, which interestingly, um, uh, they no longer call it ethical investment, but it was really started with uh, faith-based organizations, churches, obviously, um, uh, um, taking money, disinvesting from South Africa, where they were practicing apartheid. Okay, you all know what apartheid was, right? I think they still have that in the States in some ways, but uh, nevertheless, um, that was really the first action to take money away from uh, institutions or governments that people did not wish to support. And that kind of led into uh, the first ethical investments. And there's a company in town here called Northwest Ethical Investments that uh, came out in 96, or sorry, 86 with the first ethical fund. Um, But back in the 70s, it was, uh, and very much out of the States as well, it was okay, we were successful with this disinvestment from South Africa. What else do we not wish to support? What, What values do we hold closely that we do not wish to see our money support. And it was, you know, tobacco, um, alcohol, you know, which is kind of a whole other discussion, I suppose. Um, nuclear weapons, things like that. So it was a very exclusionary thing. So people that shared those values did not want to invest in those things. And that's how it kind of took root. Um, it's evolved a long way now. So we still do that. Um, we'll talk at some point here about divestment from fossil fuels, which is a whole other kind of subject, um, but it's even gone beyond that now, and now it's uh, this purpose-driven capital, impact investment. So if we're gonna exclude those things from our uh, investments, where, where's that money gonna go? What kind of growth do we want to encourage in the economy? So now it's, um, you know, but what kind of a difference can we make uh, with our money? So it's really evolved, it's getting a lot sharper. I started doing this 20 years ago, I got my license first in 1997. I did not feel comfortable um, selling investments in those things. And I started writing about it. um, And uh, I was kind of a lone voice. And now 20 years later, it's surprising, the rest of um, my community of of investment advisors has not caught up. 
Okay? This country, unfortunately, and this will sink us if we're not careful, uh, still thinks that we need to support the oil and gas industry. Okay? And I understand, you know, we all got here by various methods. If you came by bus, you still you know, we're out of share of the, the burning going on. You know, we have a transition to make, um, but let's, let's get going with it. Um, stop this sort of polarized approach to, to what's going on in this country and the way we, we uh, approach that. But the old school investment community is not on side with that. They're still financing oil and gas exploration in this country. And to say we've got to stop this uh, is meeting with a lot of resistance. So although we have a lot, uh, the ability to have a lot more impact with our investments now. Gosh, it's taken a long time for the community to come along and, and support that. So that's sort of the, in four or five minutes, the brief evolution of, of the whole um, field. But now we're here with a group of young people, which is pretty exciting. It's awesome. Um, especially for Tony, whose you know, average client is 60, My age or older. 70, yeah. um, being the young, rebellious people. Um, we're kind of at a point now where Mother Earth and our economies are sending invoices for bills that have been due over the past 250 years. Um, we've had we've taken a toll on what we've done, but I think um, on our planet. But we're at a certain point now that is really interesting for me. Why I choose to direct all my time and energy here, and for why a lot of you guys are here, um, is because we're at this really interesting place where we have this idea of sustainability, and then we have this idea from our standpoint as advisors of profitability, which is important too. Um, and this idea of doing the right thing, whatever, whatever that means. And those three things, those three people, those three ideas are kind of sitting down for the first time in what I think to be our history, and they're all having a conversation at a table. Um, that conversation between those three ideas is really what this conversation is right here. Um, how do those three intersect? How do we think thematically and literally uh, to, to actually come to conclu some conclusions uh, and move the economy? So the way I see this today and how this all wraps in is we have, we have three problems. Um, the first problem is, is our, our house is on fire, right? Uh, we have climate change. Uh, the scientific con consensus is clear. I'll get into that later. Um, the second problem that we have is on an economic scale, global economies are slowing everywhere. Global growth is slowing everywhere. Across the board, it's ubiquitous. Um, we have some emerging powers in Africa uh, and Southeast Asia as well. Across the board, though, we still see slowing growth. Um, why is that? We, sh we our inventions are better than ever. We should have higher productivity. Uh, we're a global, uh, we're now a global civilization. Interconnectivity is everywhere. Why is it slowing? Um, that has real world implications. We see the volatility that happens in the markets today. Um, and the third problem that we have as a result of those two is that we don't know where to deploy wealth. As the 1%, because we are the 1%, you make more than $30,000 a year, you're the 1%. Yeah, so when you were all like, oh, those, those one percenters at Wall Street, well, it was you. Um, and that's an elephant in the room. Like, we're extremely wealthy to sit here. Um, that's a $4 coffee. It's insane. Um, that's a reality. <laughs> not, to, not to pick on you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. And so I want to think very big picture. I want to I look at the entire context of all of this and kind of want to set the stage for a way of thinking. I don't want to get into the details. Yes, we're investment advisors. I'm not going to talk about mutual funds. I'm not going to talk about ETFs. I'm not going to talk about asset allocation or any of that. It's just big picture shit that we really need to figure out um, and find an approach and a way to go here um, so we know, so we have a direction, so we have a roadmap. Um, that's kind of essentially uh, what this is about. About It's an oversimplification in a way, but I think that we can 
Kill three birds with one stone. It's a terrible analogy for ethical investing. A little, no, not, so, not the best one, but that's okay. We, we get, you got uh, a better we'll think of another one. <laughs> I bet that's off the top. My yeah. bad. <laughs> um, yeah. We don't want to kill birds, no. Yeah, we don't want to. There's three issues we can console, solve yeah. with the same solution. It doesn't ring as, as well. <laughs> yeah. um, and the first one is, is climate change. Like, we don't really understand the, the full implications of this. Um, we're at a. Uh, has anyone heard of the. Uh, Holocene. Anyone heard that Holocene. word? Holocene. 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 Yeah. yeah. Anybody heard that word? Holocene extinction event. Anybody heard that word? So we're in an extinction event today, um, scientifically. Um, so what happens there is basically when there's an extinction event on planet Earth, there's a drastic chemical change um, in the makeup of the Earth. Uh, typically over about 10,000 years. So there was, you know, the last extinction event was the dinosaurs. Obviously, that was a, um, an external force coming in. Before that was 250 million years ago. Drastic chemical change in the atmosphere, whether that's carbon or whatever it may be, acidification, et cetera, et cetera, massive die-out. Okay, so we see, you know, anywhere from 80, 90, 95% of uh, biological die-out. We see that here today in the past 250 years. So we've seen that Typically, it takes 10,000 years. And when we look at the history of the planet today, we've done it in 250. It might only take us another 40 to, uh, to seal the deal. So we need to realize that. There, there needs to be context around that. And as the climate protesters would say, like, there's no, there's no planet B. No. That's the one, right? Yeah. yeah there's no planet B. Um, and there's no real way around that. Um, let's hope that our friends Jeff and Elon at Blue Origin <laughs> and uh, SpaceX are working hard and feel the same sense of urgency. I think that's that why do. they're doing it, actually. They need a way out. Do you think they gave up? No, anyway. They might, I don't know. Um, so the scientific consensus is really clear, but we still don't understand it. We have certain cognitive biases that we can't see this. Right, cold season came early. It's raining here today in Vancouver. What are you talking about climate change? Right, you see eight feet of snow in Boston a couple of years back. You're like, what, what, what are you talking about? We don't understand that. We have certain cognitive biases. For instance, um, hyperbolic discounting, which it, the further away something is, the less we're able to judge it. You guys are right in front of my face. Like I know, I, I know. You guys are here. You're very present. Right, something's in the other room. I have no idea. Something's down the highway. I have no clue. So it works the same way with time. So we just don't understand the urgency. However, because of the way the science is, we have to understand the urgency. So that's when you don't see that change. This is, this is kind of apparent. I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here. This is all something that we need to understand, but is, um, is very apparent. But I just don't think that we understand the economic economics behind it, how that changes our society, um, how that changes the way we manage money, how we approach this type of thing. Um, on a biological aspect, like we, why is it the mass extinction event that it is? It's because we're losing 70% of all biological life uh, on earth, uh, by the end of the century. That's a fact. All species. It's done. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I believe we already lost 40% of the birds in 30, 40 years. I don't have the exact numbers. It's ridiculous. Um, So it's real. Um, the reality of the situations that we're looking at anywhere from, uh, you know, two to four, or sorry, two to six degrees of warming at the end of the century. Um, obviously, those projections vary widely, uh, everywhere from two degrees um, all the way up to six degrees. Um, we're currently at one degree warming. Uh, 1.5 is irreversible. 
Um, that's what the scientific consensus is. Who's heard that number before 1.5? Anybody? Has you heard it? Yeah. So that's 11 years away. You guys may have heard that. Um, yeah, there's no way around that. So we are currently emitting 10 gigatons of carbon a day. Um, that's too big of a number to even comprehend. You say gigaton, I'm like, what? I don't, that's a lot. Um, I don't, it's not, I have no analogy for it. Um, the reason why I have no analogy for it is because it's not analogous with any other period in time. I can't even comprehend those numbers. You would say, oh, he's got a trillion dollars. Like, what is a, tr I don't, what, excuse me? <laughs> GDP is crazy. Um, so we see the biological impact. We know what we're doing in terms of carbon. Um, there's rising sea levels. People are like, ah, we're going to be flooding everywhere. Yes, that's true. It's also very marginal. We need to under, like, we need to be realists about this. It's not necessarily about drastic change or drastic this or drastic that. It's rising 3.3 millimeters a day, or not a day, a year. 3.3 millimeters. That's it. It's rose 100 millimeters since the first Industrial Revolution. You're looking at four feet by the end of the century because it's accelerating. So what does that mean? Well, a lot of cities are actually already underwater when it comes actually below sea level, right? So Miami Beach, that's gone. Shanghai, gone. Osaka, gone. Bangladesh, nope. Parts of Manhattan, no. And that's a big problem because like we can lose Bangladesh, you know. Right, right. He jokes. He's I'm joking. joking. I'm joking. JK, JK. I'm joking. <laughs> right, but we can't lose Manhattan. Yeah, we can. We can. We can actually lose both of them, and we probably <laughs> will, um, just because of where it's at currently with the sea level rise, where it actually sits geographically. So yes, we're not going <laughs> to care about Bangladesh when it goes under because we're the one percent doesn't act the way that it should it's not responsible i'm joking with that earlier comment obviously um but the one percent will very much care when manhattan goes under right even if new york started to build those seawalls today and build that infrastructure up and i'm not talking huge things they wouldn't it wouldn't be able to stop it right you're getting you're getting to a time now where you're going to stop for instance they're stopping building in certain parts of brooklyn right now okay in 30 years they're going to stop maintaining it and another 10, they're going to knock on those doors and say, hey, um, don't leave this for your grandkids. Right? And that's expensive real estate. So we need to move on that. Yes, I mean, like, look, look at Hong Kong, one of the most populous cities in the world. That creates this other idea, this other problem we have around mass migration. Anybody have any idea how many people migrated in, uh, this year in the world? Any clues? Any guesses? Tony? A gigaton? A gigaton? <laughs> I'm not sure. No idea? No. Any guesses? We got rich. Come on. 200 million. 200 million? Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. 70 million? That's damn close. 67 million. You got like that. <laughs> oh. 67 million. Yeah. Why are they, why are they going? Yeah. Hunger prosecution in terms of race, religion, um, a better life for most of them, violence, war, climate refugees and climate migrants are going to become a, a huge part of the narrative here. Um, the UN predicts 200 million to a billion, 1 billion migrants, uh, climate migrants by 2050. We're having problems right now. They're not getting into the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> um, not taking any. 
that, uh, that, that raises a serious question when it comes to, you know, things like building a wall sound even more inhumane at that point. You have a billion people moving borders. Borders start to dissolve at that point. Infrastructures have to be built up. This concept of like, oh, it's really cool um, for me to go and get an Uber or do a car share. You're going to need to share resources. You need to build that infrastructure for a sharing economy. That's part of this trend for the next however long. That's why it's so crucial. Not because it's great for me to save cash to go to an Uber or go to a car to go. It's going to be because we're going to we need to take these cars off the road because there's a certain amount of people. One person per car isn't logical, right? We think of what uh, uh, Turkey's dealing with, Spain's dealing with, <coughs> Germany's dealing with right now. It's a fraction of what it's go- what's going to happen in, in the near future here. And we're not prepared from an infrastructure standpoint, from a food standpoint, uh, from an education standpoint, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then on top of that, we don't understand as these people move, borders dissolve. Obviously, okay, climate affects everywhere. So what happens when uh, Jarl Bolsonaro, Brazil? Uh, Brazil. Yeah. How do you say his name? Bolsonaro. He's going to come after me for that one. Um, (laughs) What happens when Bolsonaro Bolsonaro (laughs) decides to continue to keep burning down the rainforest? for cattle or for whatever it may be, you know, again, one third of our oxygen on earth comes from the rainforest. And we now, the year is 2030, China's now an emerging power. That affects all of us, that includes, that increases the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, air quality goes down, et cetera, et cetera. So they impose military or economic sanctions on there. They put troops on the ground. What if we live in a world where you go cut down a rainforest, a major carbon store, and turn it to something that emits carbon, and all of a sudden you have troops on the ground? Now, the reason why I show that example is that we don't really understand or comprehend how this changes our spatial and our societal orientation. Yes, there's, you know, actual ramifications here in terms of transport and, and, and air pollution and water scarcity. But just how we're actually comprehending societies has to change a little bit because the place that we're living is changing. Um, again, Jeff and Elon. Hey, guys, uh, what's going on with those spaceships over there? Um, how do we feed these people um, is a huge question. And I'll, I'll hand this on off to Tony a little bit, but the, the reality of the situation is that we have, by 2050, we're looking at 9.8 billion people. That's a number you can't comprehend. Like it's literally impossible to comprehend because we've never seen that many people. You guys go to like Rogers Arena or BC Place, you see 40,000. That's, that, that's not even a fraction, right? So we see that many, that we see that many people on, on planet Earth, we need to feed them. Our planet is getting richer as we go. Um, whether you like it or not, our industrial revolutions are throwing us forward in time. And each one of us, we're getting richer as we go with the exclusion of the bottom 20%. As we get richer, what do we do? We consume more meat. Uh, we know meat is worse for the planet. It takes six times more energy, six times more land, eight times more fossil fuel. We know that plant-based proteins are far superior. Water scarcity, the world water form, tells us that five billion people, again, numbers we can't even really comprehend, are gonna experience water shortage or drought um, in the year by 2050. Five billion people, that's half the planet. You guys might remember uh, day zero in Cape Town. You guys remember that at all? All right, what do we do? Um, How do we feed these people? Where do we get this plant-based protein? How do we invest in that? How do we push that forward? Where do we go, Tony? Uh, Well, you know, um uh, growth tends to be a bit of a four-letter word. Uh, we've always used growth to mean 
uh, unfettered economic growth. Uh, you know, I believe we can achieve growth in the world, but the right kind of growth. We allow certain industries and sectors of the economy to wither and die. We take others and, and uh, encourage them and invest capital in them. Uh, everyone seen the movie Avatar? <laughs> you know what? I think they were going to name that a bad corporation. <laughs> But it didn't have quite the same catchy things. They call it Avatar instead. So, because the, the message is pretty clear in the movie, is it not? Uh, bad corporation. So uh, the director of that, of course, James Cameron, Canadian. Um, you know, his sensibilities came out in that movie quite clearly. Um, James Cameron actually owns a uh, organic vineyard in the Comox Valley and an organic vegetable market in the Comox Valley. And... Uh, I understand from his farm manager that he is, if he wasn't a movie director, he would be working in a farm somewhere. Yeah, he's, his passion is food and farming and agriculture. That's his thing. So he's got those two ventures. Um, you may be aware that he invested tens of millions of dollars in a uh, lentil processing facility in Saskatchewan. You guys all know that? Yeah. Uh, I have to grab the number. I mean, it's a, many millions, uh, tens of millions. So, um, you know, obviously, I don't have to, uh, you know, kind of reiterate that we, the whole world cannot live on a Western-based diet. It's not possible. It's not sustainable. So what are the alternatives? So people like Cameron come along, pump money into that facility. I'll tell you something. I just found this out the other day. This is absolutely incredible. Canada is the number one producer of lentils in the world. We export to India. There's more and more and more. Canada, Saskatchewan, is the perfect climate for growing lentils, navy beans, chickpeas, split peas, uh, and lentils. I think I mentioned lentils. That's our thing. So they're all, can I say bitching? They're all bitching about <laughs> oil and gas and, you know, uh, and, you know, taking that... Uh, um, you know, off of our economic plate, but we in fact have that perfect ground to grow lentils, all right? So uh, one corporation that sees that is in the States called Ingredion, uh, trades on the New York Stock Exchange, is into food processing. They've partnered up with James Cameron to uh, buy a lot of those lentils that are, that are processed, and guess where they end up? They end up in your Beyond Burger, or Beyond Meat Burger, which I've not tried yet. Uh, I actually make a pretty good lentil burger at home myself, okay? So I don't need to go out to wherever to get one. I'll, I will try one one day. Sure. But this is kind of, this is a mega theme you cannot escape, right, for the next 50 years. It's just, there's just no way around it. So, you know, get used to lentils. <laughs> the next frontier after that is crickets, okay? And, <laughs> you know, I haven't tried crickets either. I, I would put a spoonful in my gravy, perhaps, you know, or in my baking. Uh, it's a perfect protein, apparently. It's a complete protein, got all the amino acids and everything. And, uh, you know, that is where, you know, a quarter of the planet uh, uh, subsists on insects in, in their diet. It's just our Western sensibilities that go, Phew. You know, she's seen Joss's stomach turn when I mentioned crickets. Stomach's turning right now. <laughs> so, but you know what? Those sorts of themes, there's, that's not an investable theme that I'm aware of yet, but lentils are. Mm. Okay, so our capital, investment capital, if you want to use that as an example, we need to support that transition uh, to a sustainable planet. Um, and uh, hopefully, 
uh, you profit along the way a little bit. And profit's another one of those funny words, you know, but hopefully there'd be some sort of return on your investment for supporting something that's not only good for your pocket, but good for the planet as a whole. Okay? And that's really the thesis. Um, so we see food, water scarcity, um, air pollution, transportation, new energy regimes, you name it. Um, there's these new mega trends that are emerging that, you know, frankly, the institutional money hasn't moved yet. Um, where it's moving very slowly, which provides the opportunity for us as retail investors and advisors. And that's, again, why I'm here in my career choice doing what I do with my life um, is because of, of those trends, because I believe in them so much. So we need, it's clear because of the way the earth is shaping up, we need a new economic vision for the world. We need to move the economy, the businesses that are disrupting and frankly fucking up this planet to move in a different direction that's more profitable because they won't move if it's not more profitable. We know this. Um, that's more profitable, more sustainable. And yes, we can all sit here and be like, yeah, that's the right thing to do, that's great. Um, but we need to find ways to, to push that transition, to finance the tra transition, invest in that transition. Um, these, when we, look, when we look back at time, these economic shifts happen um, when there's disruption in a couple of major ways. Um, social uh, movements is one of them. Um, Extinction Rebellion is one of them. Um, that protest, you guys see that protest on Barra Bridge? Pretty crazy, 14 hours. I know someone who was there. <laughs> um, government policies, uh, market confidence, new technologies, better science. Whenever that stuff all comes together, we can then move the economy in a new way, which is very, very exciting. Um, SRI is now kind of popping into the mainstream. SRI, socially responsible investing. What does my money do for the environment? You know, robo-advisors now have that little box you can check that says SRI, which is, we won't get into that, um, but it's starting to move. We see big fund companies, uh, RBC, BMO, have this, um, what is it, is it divestment? Yeah. What's their flagship? Fossil fuel-free. Fossil fuel-free funds. Yeah. This is an idea that Tony was working on 20 years ago um, that is just kind of starting to pop into the mainstream, yeah, right? So maybe RBC has a fund shelf of, a thousand funds i don't know there's lots a big number of funds <clears throat> and now they have three um fossil fuel free but you all are driving that absolutely your, your your demand your awareness is driving that yeah okay why are they there um why is that happening yes it's your demand and your um outcry the social movements the technology is moving but it's large in part because carbon zero carbon technologies and energy sources are now out competing traditional fossil fuels. That's it. It's just cheaper. They're selling futures contracts in Germany right now for solar, panel, uh, solar power for two cents per kilowatt hour. That's much more marginally cheaper than fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. For every extra kilowatt hour that we add on to that is extremely cheaper, right? We can mass produce this. It's much cheaper to move this in, in this direction. Um, it's more profitable. Can I say one thing about that? Well, yeah. I guess you can. <laughs> the other thing that's driving this uh, from the big financial institution perspective is uh, risk reduction. Okay, mm. so to hold a portfolio, a Canadian, typical Canadian portfolio where you've got a bunch of banks financing a bunch of oil companies is now turning out to be very risky. Those oil companies value their companies based on their proven reserves, the oil in the ground or the gas in the ground. Okay, what if that oil stays in the ground. What's your company worth? Okay, so that's the whole stranded asset discussion, which is for another day. But the, the big finance now says that's a risk that we don't want to take. 
And this is part of the reason why it's not just your demand your, your, from your values and from your heart. It's, you know, it's being pushed along also by the financial institutions who want to de-risk. It just, it's too risky. That's just one example, right? You risk, there's lots of ways to blow up your brand. Uh, you know, hiring slave labor in Bangladesh or um, is many, many ways. So all of those are risky behaviors for a corporation and that kind of drives this momentum along for responsible investment. But why is it going to be, there's no lack of oil. No. Uh, yeah. So the, it, you know, the stone age didn't end because there was a lack of stones and the oil age won't end because there's a lack of oil. Even if we move away from it, I guess. Yeah. There's some fundamental flaws with the internal combustion engine when it comes to um, efficiency and things of that nature. Um, which is maybe why we have to move away from them. And obviously there's social and economic implications along with that. Um, so the other reality that we live in past climate change is, and past these megatrends, is that we're in a spot where our economies are slowing. Again, as I alluded to earlier, this doesn't really make any sense. Um, as we look throughout the past um, three centuries since the first industrial revolution, uh, we see increased GDP. Um, for those that didn't go to Econ 101, it's very simple. GDP drives economic growth. Um, GDP is powered by productivity. Very simple. Um, you increase your productivity, you increase your GDP, you increase uh, your economy. Your economy gets better. Um, so our economists are telling us we have another 20 years, 25 years of slowing global economic growth. This is a huge problem because all, con all countries, or rather companies, have that 14% growth per year, 7% growth per year. This is very important to them, right? Obviously, we need to hit our targets. What happens when that growth slows? Okay, why is that growth slowing? Our technology is better, our products are better, our humans are better trained, education is more widely available. It doesn't make sense. So why is growth slowing? There's a couple of theories out here, and I'm not convinced on any one of them. Um, but it really matters in terms of how we move forward and, and what our infrastructure is. There's a, there's a guy named uh, Robert Solo. Anybody heard of him? Northwestern University. He's one of the, in, in the age of social media, we have like these cool professors. You know, every once in a while you find a cool professor um, and some are uncool. He's one of the cool ones, um, if you will. One of his prevailing theories on economics and why it's not moving fast or growing at the rate that it should is because we're not inventing things that push economy the way that we used to. For instance, like the internal combustion engine, airplanes, telephone, oil and gas. These are things that drastically improved economic activity, boosted uh, GDP, et cetera, et cetera. What do we invent today? Um, there are a lot of things that are pushing us forward, that are um, pushing us forward in terms of technology, but our prevailing technologies today don't save us time. So as much as we invented, Remarkable. you know, um, cars and highways and things we get from A to B much quicker. Today we invent Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and things that are time wasters rather than time savers. Um, our technology in terms of AI is moving but it hasn't really hit the GDP yet um, in terms of how productive is the average person or worker um, really being. Um, maybe our inventions are worse. That's one theory. Another theory is that you guys hear the news about Antitrust laws at all, like breaking up Facebook, Amazon, Google, Twitter. Um, so there's antitrust laws in the U.S., meaning 
The US wants a lot of small cap stocks, a lot of small companies to um, have a free enterprise market, to push the market uh, that fosters innovation. They don't want these huge monopolies as much as it may seem they, they do. Um, <laughs> so they developed these antitrust laws originally for Hen- Henry Ford and for the oil and gas companies. Now we're seeing the same thing. Those, those laws are coming back to the forefront um, for companies like Twitter, Amazon, Facebook, Snapchat, et cetera, et cetera, um, because companies just simply can't compete. Why are monopolies bad? Monopolies are bad, profitable, bad, because they stifle innovation. Because rather than 10 people, 10 entrepreneurs going at it to try to figure out a better way to service their company, it's one company controlling the cash hold, controlling the market, and doing what they will, dictating it, right? We experience this as consumers when TELUS was the only mobile and Rogers and Bell with three companies. And we were paying $100 for a gig of data. Feel me though, like, you know, like that was, you know, (laughs) it was real. Um, So maybe it's that. Maybe we have too many monopolies in the world. Or maybe it's the wealth gap. The richest nine people, we could fit them right here. There's a couple more than nine of us here. Outweigh the bottom three and a half billion in terms of net worth. This is not something that's new. We've we've known this. But why is that a problem as it relates to economy and growing GDP? Well, that's a problem because when you gain wealth, it becomes less about creating wealth and more about preserving wealth. So what do you do? You sit on cash. You don't go out and and purchase impact investments and build solar farms and, and, and fund new companies and go into venture capital. You sit on cash, you go into GICs, uh, you figure out um, solid government bonds, low return, no volatility, and we figure out the best way to pass on this massive amount of wealth that I have to the next generation. It's not about innovating. It's not about pushing our economy forward. So don't get rich. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, We have a problem around, so those those are a couple of theories, and I'm not convinced on any of them. Um, they've won Nobel Peace Prizes. They've they've done cool things in academia. I just I'm just not I'm just I just don't believe it. There's a guy named Jeremy Rifkin. Who's heard of him? Anyone heard of Jeremy Rifkin? Another cool cool professor. Of course he has. He's cheating. <laughs> um, there's a guy named Jeremy Rifkin who has a really cool prevailing theory. Um, he thinks we're on a flawed infrastructure. He thinks that we're in a space where we just simply can't go past our gross productivity, um, our gross GDP, because we're working on an infrastructure, businesses interconnected that have a wrong fuel source, long story short. Um, Jeremy Rifkin is someone who's extremely intelligent. He's given, he actually has a, um, a lecture on Vice, which you guys should all check out. Um, he's given a talk here at UBC, a uh, very cool guy. And his theory on economic growth it's like economic growth. It's like, oh, great. What a bright and lovely subject. It's something that honestly compels 12-year-olds um, because it's very simple, um, simply that we're moving on the wrong type of infrastructure. He is someone that's very well respected and, and uh, regarded like throughout the world. Uh, he's an advisor to the People's Republic of China. He's an advisor uh, to Angela Merkel of Germany and multiple heads of states in the EU. He's an advisor to the EU. Um, he's pushing forward this new narrative um, of changing our infrastructure, going through a third industrial revolution. Uh, things are very interesting there. Before I can even explain that and how that goes into our investment themes here today, we got to know a little bit about economics. And I'll go through this very quickly. But as I said earlier, 
Economies are pushed by GDP. GDP is pushed by productivity. What accounts for productivity? That's the next logical question in that. How do we get, how do we become more productive as an economy? So this guy, Robert Solo, who I talked about earlier, won the Nobel Peace Prize when he said, 7% of productivity comes from better humans, better people, better workers, more educated people. 7% comes from better technology, better machines. Where's the other 86%? We don't know. Is that a question? Can we, yeah, can we try? Else? Do you have the answer? Yeah, go, I do. Do you have an answer? No, yeah. I got all the answers. Okay. Where's the other 86%? Inspiration? Oh, close. No. 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 Where's the other 86%? Innovation. Did we talk about that one? No, a little bit. Okay. Aggregate efficiency. Potential oh. work. Actual work. Give you an example. In nature, the easiest way to comprehend this is the example he gives. A lion chases down a gazelle, eats the gazelle, ingests the, the meat and the energy that's in the gazelle. Well, that's a very inefficient energy transfer. So 10%-ish of the energy that's in that gazelle through the meat is actually ingested and used by the lion. The rest is lost in thermodynamic heat loss. The chase down, the heat that the meat emits. So aggregate efficiency accounts for 86% of productivity. Hmm. So it's all thermodynamics, there's lots of physics. Kind of goes back to our idea of a flawed infrastructure. So he won the Nobel Peace Prize when he said that. So here's what we do in our economy, and here's how this relates. In our economy, what we do is we take a material. We take it from the earth. Um, we take it, we ship it, we, we produce it, we refine it, then we ship it again, um, then we distribute it, uh, then we consume it, and then we recycle it back to the earth. So there's a bunch of steps in this. That's the supply chain we're all familiar with. What's wrong with that problem or with, with, uh, with that situation, that supply chain, is that at every point in there, we insert energy into it, meaning... There's low aggregate efficiency at every point. Um, it's thermodynamic heat loss. Not only as we go from you know, taking a, a precious metal that we all use in our cell phones, and we take that and we actually shape it, refine it, put it in right into the iPhone. Yes, there's energy loss there in terms of gold going from that or whatever the precious metal is going to that form. But then we also insert energy into it, so it's very low. That's how our economy works at every, across all goods and services, right? We insert things into it. Low aggregate efficiency. So, again, how do we bring this back to the whole narrative? Well, who did, the, who did this the best? How do we increase economic activity? The person or the country that did this the best was the U.S. in the 20th century. They got up to 3% aggregate efficiency. How efficient were all the goods and services through the supply chain? Why is that important? Because it boosts GDP. Boost the economy. In a place where we're peaked in our economy, this is why we're thinking about this. Um, so we moved through that, 3%. Japan got up to 20% uh, early 20th century, uh, sorry, early 2000s. Um, and we've peaked there ever since. Can't get past it. Why? Because we're using fossil fuels as that internal combustion engine. Why is that flawed? Because we're creating fires, containing them, and that's not very efficient from a heat standpoint. Just about heat. The other thing is we're not properly accounting for external costs, of course, on those things, you know, damage to the environment, damage to social systems and things like that. So we haven't figured out a way. We're starting to get there with the carbon tax. We haven't figured out how to account for those. Like, what is the cost of losing 10 billion birds? 
So, do we have a bigger tax? What do we do? I don't know. I don't have the answer to these questions. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, th I think the theme then is redirecting our capital to. I, 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 see me. I go a little bit off tack here, um, but it kind of ties in. I think when Joss talks about increasing economic activity, I want to know, on, on, in all honesty, how many of you feel you have the same opportunities in this world that my generation had? Good. Okay. More. More. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Yeah. I was going to say more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay, I, that was just a survey question. Um, okay. You know, uh, because I think the grand theme here in increasing economic activity is increasing opportunities for you to be agents of that change, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you, so we have an optimistic bunch, for the most part, uh, that feels they have a part to play and that they have those opportunities. I, I wasn't sure about that, hmm. you know? And I, I'm sure there's some resentment towards my generation for the shitty mess we got you all in. Hmm. So that's okay. Kick me. I, you know, I, I, I acknowledge that. Um, but we didn't know. We, we kind of knew. Does anyone know when the first... Uh, <laughs> does anyone know when the first major climate change conference, where and when that took place? Kyoto, Japan, 1996 eight. or 8, yeah. 7. It was 23 years ago. Everyone got together and said, uh-oh, trouble ahead. And where are we now? We're deeper in it. So, yeah. But that, that does create opportunities for you as well. So, yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh, Greta, Greta. Thunberg. Thunberg. And there was, a, there was a, a batch of young people. Greta was another one. There was another two or three. She was the most popular one. Anybody know those other names? Everyone's afraid of her. I would be too. <laughs> None of those politicians in Alberta want to talk to her. Yeah. Julia yeah. versus the United States. Anybody heard of that at all? Julia versus the United States. Uh, there was a school project in Oregon um, that went in. That she uh, she's a fourth grader. Or I'm messing up her grade, but she's very young. Uh, and she went out and she uh, studied the effects of climate change. And then she was reading about the Constitution and how uh, in the Constitution in the U.S. it's about you need to provide equal opportunity um, for this generation as much as the next and provide a free enterprise and free uh, so and so. So every man and woman and da da da, -da has the same opportunities, um, which we could argue is happening. Um, especially today in the US. And so what she did from that is she said, well, hold on, if I, if I can't, if there's now risk for me, if I can't get the same proteins and foods and I can't go and work in Miami because the economy is crashing there or whatever it may be, um, I don't really have the same opportunities. Um, and so she sued the government in, uh, in state court uh, and she won. And she won. She said, yep, this is unconstitutional. Suing for inaction against climate change. Um, and so now she's going to the federal government, to the federal courts. Interesting. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to bet against a, a 14 or however old she is. Um, but it's very interesting. And it's, that goes back to your, to your point right there yeah. of like, do we have the same opportunity? Do we not? Am I going to be able to um, take a plane to, I don't know, 
Bangladesh or some spot um, in the future the way I would? Am I going to be able to, if I'm a young entrepreneur, am I going to be able to source shirts from those spots or whatever it may be? Is the supply chain going to become corrupted? I'm going to have to pay more, et cetera, et cetera. Do I have the same opportunity? I don't know. Um, we're yet to see that. Um, so we got a title on together here. We're in the sixth mass extinction event on Earth, scientifically. Um, we have a serious global economic problem. There's volatility, trade wars, polarity, uh, productivity is slowing. We don't know what to do. Um, I think that this new infrastructure and these themes that we talk about from an ethical um, investing standpoint or from an impact investing standpoint are the exact solutions to those two problems. And again, that's the whole theme. That's why we're here. Um, I think that those things provide direction and will provide an opportunity for a new infrastructure for us to move past slowing global economic growth and climate change. Again, profitability, sustainability, and we can sit here and do the right thing, all kind of working in the same direction. And we can fund it. We can invest in it. We can buy green bonds. Um, we can go and, and, and find the companies that are pushing these innovations forward. We can, it's not available or it's not known. It's very available. It's not known to the general public what action we can do to actually invest in these things. Well, there's clues around. Um, that guy, Bill Gates, you know, went through $62 million at a carbon capture machine in Squamish, mm -hmm. just north of here, carbon engineering. They take carbon out of the air, suck it out of the atmosphere, condense it into blocks. Carbon actually has a price, folks. And they sell it. They sell it back to petroleum companies. There's, there's an issue there. I've got to say, though, I'm not, not a big fan of that approach. Why not? Um, because, that, because it provides license to spew carbon. Ooh. Sorry. You know, you want to get dark green or light green Totally. Here. Totally. Oh, we could divest. Right. You know, to me, the challenge is bringing along those entrenched positions in our financial world here in Canada, in Calgary, in Edmonton, you can't just cut them off. You have to figure out a way to pull them, kicking and dragging <laughs> along and, and accommodate them in retraining or relearning. Uh, we can't just cut them off, okay? I'm not a big fan of Alberta, to say the least. Um, uh, I always, when I see these um, climate announcements and all these things or... Um, you know, uh, Greta Thunberg in Edmonton today, and I start reading the comment section attached to that. Margaret Atwood did a piece in the Globe and Mail the other day. You all know Margaret Atwood, uh, which was really came down hard on, on our current economic system. And man, the argument that goes on online in the forums is like, you know, it's, uh, it, it's unbelievable. So uh, that's not good, I don't think, to have entrenched positions like that. I mean, um, I think I'm right. I think you're right. Okay. So the challenge is not to, you know, blow it all up. The rest of it is to try and coax it along somehow. And uh, I, I think that's, um, you know, if you can figure out how to way to show someone that, um, you know, you can give up that job and have a, 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 another job in the new economy, uh, drilling for geothermal perhaps instead of oil, now you start to move that infrastructure along where we want it to go. Absolutely. So we know that fossil fuel is in a fossil fuel is a sunset industry um, the average lifespan of a town um, when there's uh, an energy source discovered in it uh, Cumberland for you island guys um, is 13 years 13 years of economic prosperity dries up and you go coal town yeah coal town 
Um, so that's very, very, very real. It's about how we transport, or not transport, how we transition um, these companies away from these energy sources and say, hey, by the way, this is coming down the pipeline as we're advising or we're talking with these companies or we're engaging with these companies. This is coming down the pipeline. These technologies are here. They're not widely adapted yet, but they're here. And guess what? They're more profitable. We can move this way. You can, as a company, can have lower marginal costs and you can take out the risk of these stranded assets, which we talked about earlier. So we need to find a way to transition these sunset industries, these, co these companies, and move them into a new economic infrastructure. A lot of what Jeremy talks about, Jeremy Rifkin talks about, engaging with these companies, building the infrastructure, creating jobs through all of that. Um, I want to dive a little bit deeper into, do you have any thoughts on that? I got lots of thoughts. You go ahead. We've got to, I got to be on that ferry at quarter to six. <laughs> um, I want to dive a little bit deeper into give a little bit of more context around like this moment in time because we're very close-minded. Again, cognitive dis dissonance and hyperbolic discounting. We don't understand the world. This is about context. Um, we are here for like that much when we really think about this in terms of our time on this planet. Um, the dinosaurs were here for that much. It takes 10,000 years to get back, et cetera, et cetera. There's millions of species on the globe. We're the newest. Um, we're the babies on the block. And there's no guarantee we're going to make it through. Um, when we look at how we've changed, we've terraformed our, our planet, um, it's changed drastically in the last 250 years. That's what's caused and affected this change, changed the atmosphere, changed the chemical makeup, the, again, uh, the chemistry I talked about earlier. So first industrial revolution. Who knows? Anybody know? First, was no, where it was, when it happened, guys. High school. I know high school was a long time ago. Um, first industrial revolution, uh, Brits, 19th century. Um, we went from hand-printed German printing press to steam-powered printing press, so we could distribute uh, information much quicker and on a mass scale. Huge, 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 huge. Uh, we've discovered coal and steam power. Then we put that steam power, we put it on tracks, locomotives. Now we can move in a different way. At the same time, um, the telegraph system was laid out across the British Isles. Now we could communicate with someone who wasn't even in the same place. This was drastic. I know like the internet was a big deal, but like this was, this was hot shit um, at the time. So that changed the way we orientated our, our city. So we had drastically different economic activity that increased. Okay, we go to second industrial revolution. Anybody know? Guys, it wasn't that long ago. Were you alive? I'm not, really. no, I'm not answering. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, America, uh, 19th century, or 20th century rather. Um, big Texas oil converges with Model T Fords. Our guy Henry Ford puts everyone on the road. Then we build the highways. It changes how we create our urbanization. We get segregated communities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the telephone comes through. Again, cool. Were you alive when that happened? Mm. Yeah. Oh, you serious? I was, had a cord I was, on. I was throwing shade. It had a cord on. You couldn't <laughs> go like, more yeah. than six feet from the wall. You know? <laughs> just got an extra long cord from Radio Shock. <laughs> TV came along. Radio came along. Um, all these, again, how we communicated changed it changed drastically. Um, now we we move forward a little bit to today. Now we have renewable energy at scale, cheaper than fossil fuel energy. We now have a global. 4G and soon to be 5G communication system, an internet of things network, meaning every sensor, every camera is connected to those two phones, those two phones are connected to the laptop, laptops connected to the car, everything's talking to each other, which increases aggregate efficiency. So we have renewable energy, new renewable energy regimes, meeting communication regimes, 
Um, and now we're moving the economy in a different way too. Because now we have these renewable energies, we can now put those into Teslas. And we can now move these things differently. Okay, we now have autonomy systems that can drive without us, which is more efficient, right? Why is traffic inefficient? Traffic's inefficient because if I'm car A, there's a car in front of me, car B, and there's car C. When car C starts going, I don't start going. We don't move as one. I start going, well, there's a lag between car C and car B. So we move slowly and we stop slowly. We go slowly, we stop slowly. If we're all autonomous, that whole process becomes more efficient. Everything starts and everything stops and moves like a train. If we're all in autonomous vehicles, these things become more efficient. Our economy becomes more efficient. We have now autonomous logistics systems and transportation systems and shipping systems. So all of these things are moving together. All that I'm saying is that massive economic disruption happens when we need a new economic vision. What happens is there's a convergence of how we move the economy, how we manage it, and how we power it. And those three things have come together one more time here. And that's why I think we're such early movers, or I'm actually not an early mover. My guy Tony over here is an early mover. Um, and where the money is going to go and how institutions haven't necessarily gone there yet and how we have that opportunity as retail investors um, or as citizens to help fund that transition and move there quickly because we don't have the bureaucracy of these big institutions. We can now identify these trends and move there. And guess what? Yeah, we labeled them ethical. The, 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 yeah, the words changed a little bit. You know, one person's ethics might not be another person's ethics, but uh, the opportunity to put your money into uh, uh, things you believe in now is is light years ahead of where it was 20 years ago. So I don't know how many people have, have kind of peeled away the layers on the eth so-called ethical funds. You know, they, they do some good work. They believe that rather than divest from the oil companies, we're going to sit down and talk to them about changing their ways and transitioning their businesses. And we have to have a seat at the table and enter into a dialogue. I get it. Um, uh, but, you know, you don't have to accept that. So uh, the opportunities now for you have gone so far beyond that. It's To me, it's very exciting. And I can't tell you how much... Um, uh, joy and satisfaction I get from uh, having Joss on board here and to see all you as you know I can kind of pass this along now you're not gonna retire tomorrow man like, uh, I'm not I'm, I'm not quite ready all right. okay. <laughs> I don't but you know what I mean it's like somebody's <laughs> got to pick up the torch so totally, totally. and I don't see it in my industry I really don't so. yeah um, we went out and tried to find other people that were trying to move money in this new way, invest in these new things, and it's damn near impossible. Um, there's one team out of Victoria that's doing it. There's uh, us in the North Island, myself here, um, and there's one other advisor uh, here in the city, um, a handful in Toronto, two or three that I found. There's steps being taken, well, simple's taking well, steps. Well, simple's moving a little bit. But you bit. know what, they're like first grade with what they're doing, okay? So if you start peeling that one away, it's... Right. But it's a step in the right direction, don't get me wrong, okay? So it's good to be moving down that path, even if it's just baby steps. So we're all kind of, yes, we want to help the world, we want to push things forward, but we're all selfish, like human nature is selfish. We, we want to benefit ourselves. We're wired that way. We have a human behavior um, that's necessary for us to be selfish for, for us to survive. Um, so it becomes about, okay, how do we tap our deepest human motivations, our values, our ethics, 
and do this in a way that's going to motivate me to move in this direction and help the global good as we adapt this kind of biosphere consciousness, this general collectiveness um, and saying, yeah, my life or my world or my house or my job matters just as much as a person across um, the, the world for me. How do we drive that? Um, that's, that's what's most interesting to me, the, the human psychology part of it, the investment part of it. Um, our job is to find, identify the companies, identify the industries um, that are moving this way, pushing the car down the exponential, um, really the roadmap that we have that we need to, to reach um, net zero carbon by 2050. It's three decades. It's 30 years. Um, that's half of Tony's life. Remaining yeah. life? Yeah, remaining. <laughs> oh, okay. Net carbon zero by 2050, as per the climate accord, uh, the Paris Climate Accord, um, and half of that by 2030. So we need to find that roadmap. So 2030 is 10 years away. Global emissions are going to peak in 2020. So 2020 is our new baseline. And we have to have a drastic economic vision to change that by 2030. And then to actually see that through by 2050 <clears throat> and have to complete and total adaption by 2060 and beyond. That's why that's called ethical investing for the next half century. Guys, half century away, we'll be 70, 80, 90. Still here. Your still life taken. expectancy might be 130. It might be. And that's part of the trends that we look into. Biotech, longevity. That's very much ethical <clears throat> investing as well. This is all part of the same thing. We have an opportunity now where... At, Exponential technology curves could now lead into exponential returns. And that's, that's what's exciting. Um, and that's why I think we can be motivated to move this way. Um, and it's so funny because it's like, who is, like who, who is heading this movement? And it's Greta, uh, a teenager um, who just kind of sprung onto the scene and why is it the youth that's driving this, someone who can't even drive is driving this, this movement forward? Um, why is that? Well, it's because it takes first principles thinking, very simple thinking. I want you to move as if your house was burning down, because it is, right? That's reality. All I'm saying here is we have a climate, we have an extinction event. We have serious problems in our economy, and guess what? We still need to grow and preserve our wealth. So how do I think linearly across all of those things, thematically, and deploy wealth? Now we kind of have a little bit of a roadmap here. That's what, that's what we do. And yes, it's able, labeled ethical so we can uh, you know, feel like good people and all that because that's what it used to be about. So now ethical investing is moving to logical investing. Um, and it's not about being a great person. Yes, I really enjoy <laughs> meeting the people that I, that I meet and they are very good at their core, which is extremely exciting to me. But it's also, you know, this isn't charity work. We're, all, we're here to make money as well um, and push the economy. That's what it's, that's kind of what it's really about, um, moving from that commonplace of, of ethics. So I think that we're in a spot now to wrap where we have the context we need to kind of move in this direction. As we look into the 2020s, um, which could very well, which again, three months away, two months away, uh, 2020s could very well be the defining decade of our species. Um, we have the opportunity now as the 1%. Um, we have the opportunity for biological and economic catastrophe or prosperity. And it's really up to us. 
Can I, if I could just add one thing, those of you who are already investing through JOS, uh, and you haven't talked, maybe you have talked about this, but your carbon footprint of your investment portfolio is a fraction of what it would be if you'd walked into one of the big banks and just had something off the shelf. It's a fraction. You're already doing something very, very important. Yeah. Okay, so kudos. You're looking at like, you, the charts are like, if you have a, a vegan diet, you're saving 2.4 tons of carbon in the atmosphere every year. Um, not driving a car, around 3.5. Um, not, uh, not hopping on airplanes, up around 60 tons. Um, huge, huge, huge. If you fly from New York to LA, your, your, your share of that carbon is melting four cubic <clears throat> meters of uh, permafrost on you know, the ice caps. That's, that's a huge deal, not only because uh, you know, the Arctic is you know, rising our sea levels and acidif- uh, uh, adding um, CO2 to our oceans, mm-hmm. um, but because the permafrost then becomes, it's no longer a carbon store, becomes you know, a producer of carbon in the atmosphere. It's a huge problem. So you have that, bam, and then you have having a kid, which is huge, huge elephant in the room. How do you want to you know, affect the environment? Don't have a kid. Sorry, guys, or have one, don't have two. Um, you know, that's the best, that's the best thing you can do. Or one of the best things you can do right next to that is the carbon impact of a hundred thousand dollar portfolio. You know, you're looking at 92 tons of carbon into the atmosphere, uh, every year from your share of your investments into a broad based U S market. We're looking at a whole crap load of carbon. I think kids are okay, but you got to get them to eat crickets. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. I'm I'm just kidding. Thank you guys Um, for coming out. I appreciate you guys. Thank you.